0: I'd like to ask you to turn, please, to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. God speaks to his people through his word, so please give him your attention. On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he, he, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The author J.R.R. Tolkien, in writing about his method of storytelling, once coined the term eucatastrophe. It's a word that he made up. He added the prefix eu, which in the Greek, that prefix means good. He combined it with the word catastrophe to create eucatastrophe, which means good catastrophe. It's the opposite of what a catastrophe is. This is how he defined it in his own writing. He said, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. That dramatic moment of turnabout in a story that is so common to a good story. It's that moment in the story when total disaster is imminent and all hope is lost. And then suddenly, from somewhere, the hope of deliverance appears when the good good guys in the story go from despair to great joy. There are a number of examples of course in Tolkien's writings of this if you're familiar with the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. For instance, those times when the great eagles show up at just the last moment when hope is almost gone, the eagles show up to deliver the heroes of the story. That happens a number of times. Or remember the battle at Helm's Deep, when the good guys fought valiantly, but they were totally spent, about to lose, when Gandalf appears on the great horse Shadowfax with a thousand soldiers to defeat the army of the orcs. And then, of course, there's the ending. I have to be very careful here, because one of the elementary students came up to me after the first service and said, You know, I I like that sermon, but I'm listening to the Lord of the Rings now, and thanks a lot for ruining the ending for me. (laughs) But if you're familiar with the ending of the Lord of the Rings, you know that there is a moment at the end where it seems like the quest has totally failed, and then something suddenly and unexpectedly happens. And I won't finish that. But you know, if you know the story, you know what happens It's it's These are all examples of a eucatastrophe a sudden turn from despair to joy and deliverance as we've seen as we've been looking and studying through the book of Esther we've seen already that in the past couple of chapters there have been some eucatastrophes some very unexpected turns in the story that caused the good guys to rejoice throughout the first five chapters we've seen that up until chapter six everything seemed to be going downhill for Esther for Mordecai and for the Jewish people everything was going wrong and it was getting worse and worse and hope was being lost more and more at the instigation of their enemy Haman the Agagite of the Amalekites the historic enemies of the people of God Haman the second in power in the kingdom had devised and, and had manipulated the king to issue an irrevocable decree that the Jews be exterminated in all of the known world. But we saw in Chapter 6 there was a crux, there was a turning point. And it was a, that sleepless night when the king was reading the historical archives and came across the fact that Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew, had saved his life, had kept him from being assassinated. And from that point on, it is the turning point in the whole story. And everything gets more hopeful from that point on as we have seen. Not only does Mordecai get great honor, but he gets that honor at the hands of his enemy, Haman. And then when Queen Esther finally makes her request to for, on behalf of the Jews, the plot is, is unveiled and Haman he pleads with Esther, and he's accused of assaulting Esther, and then Haman is executed. And that's where we left off at the end of chapter 7. Some new catastrophes, but a real catastrophe is still lurking, isn't it? The Jews are still under the decree of death. Within eight months, they will be wiped out as a race. Haman is gone, but the decree still lives, and it's an irrevocable law, irrevocable. How can an irreversible decision be reversed? That's the question that we will see answered in chapter 8. It's a tale of two decrees, and we're going to see this reversal that started in chapter 6 is going to hit a high point in chapter 8 where those that were low are brought high and those that are high have been brought low. We're going to see a reversal from ashes to honor, for Mordecai in particular, from death to deliverance on the part of the Jews, and from grief to joy on the part of the Jews and Esther and Mordecai. Let's look at the first one. The reversal from ashes of despair to honor and glory. Look at verses 1 and 2. It wasn't very long ago that Haman was clothed in sackcloth and ashes as he despaired over the fate of the people of God. But now we see that the one who had all that the world has to offer, all the power, all the honor, all the glory, all the wealth, Haman, everything that he took pride in, his position, his power, his wealth, has now been handed over to who? Mordecai, his most hated enemy. The house of Haman, his entire wealth, his estate, reverts to the king because he's executed as a traitor, and then the king gives all of that to Esther, his queen, who then in turn appoints Mordecai to oversee the entire estate and wealth of Haman. What a glorious example of God's intervention to bring about a total reversal. The king also gave Mordecai his signet ring which had belonged to Haman and represented that position of being the second most powerful person in the kingdom second only to the king and that signet ring whoever had it had the right to act and speak on behalf of the king as his representative it's given to Mordecai and in verse 15 you get the ultimate picture of the heights to which Mordecai has been raised let me read that verse to you again Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. He was obviously a Penn State fan. (laughs) With a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Total reversal. Psalm 9, verses 15 and 16 say, The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Haman has lost everything, including his life. Mordecai has been given as a gift everything that had been Haman's, including his power and his authority and his wealth. You know, this is an overarching theme of scripture jesus said it as succinctly as anywhere when he said many who are first will be last and the last first now it doesn't happen that way in this life most of the time what we're talking about is an ultimate end not an immediate end an eternal end not a temporal end because we know that in this world and the scripture is very clear about this in this world more often than not, the righteous will suffer and the wicked will prosper. But the story of Mordecai is given to us to remind us that that's not the end of the story. In Psalm 73, it teaches us how to focus on the end of all things, to keep our focus. And that's a struggle every day, to not get caught up in the immediate circumstances of our lives, but keep our focus on the end of all things that has not only been promised, but has been guaranteed. That the first will be last and the last will be first. That those who live in obedience and faithfulness and faith in the Lord will one day be exalted. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 says, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, says, By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign On the earth. They shall reign on the earth. That's if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that's your future. You will reign in the new heavens and the new earth. You are heirs and co-heirs with Christ of the eternal kingdom. You are princes and princesses who will reign for eternity in a renewed heavens and earth week and a half ago when we were um, when we were in this West African country that we visited on behalf of Oakwood, we were talking about the culture and the people and admiring the people. And one of the, a comment that was made that stuck in my memory was this. It said, somebody said, you know, in spite of their poverty, these people have a regal air about them. They have a regal air about them in spite of their circumstances. And I thought that should be said of the church of believers in every circumstance. No matter what your circumstances are in this world, in this life, in this era, there should be a regal air about you because of what Christ has done for you. And if that doesn't change your self-image, your attitude to your place in the world, then you haven't really contemplated what the scriptures have taught about your future reign, about your future blessing. The second reversal that we look at in this passage is a reversal from certain death to deliverance. Look at verses 3 to 6. Esther continues in her role, her very Christ-like role, of being an intercessor for the people of God, a mediator for the people of God. God has placed her in that position for such a time as this. But think about it. What an unlikely candidate she was to be a mediator and an intercessor for the people of God. She had rejected her people. And we don't know how forcibly she was taken to be the queen of Persia, but we do know that the practical impact of it was that she left her people behind. She accommodated to the culture and the lifestyle of the palace. And she hid her identity as a Jew, as one of God's people. She hid it from everybody around her. And now she's the one that the Lord has raised up to intercede on behalf of her people before the most powerful person on the planet. She had chosen, in the words of Hebrews 11, up until this point, she had chosen to reject her identity in the Lord. She refused, in the words of Hebrews 11, to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I mean, Moses, it's talking about Moses in Hebrews 11. Moses left the palace to identify with the people of God and to intercede and mediate for them. Esther, up until this point, up until a couple of chapters ago, she had totally rejected that role and had conformed to the world around her. But now she steps up and she speaks with passion. Notice the the incredible passion in her words in verse 6 when she pleads for the people of God. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Her heart's been changed. She's been given a deep love for God's people. And a deep sense of identity with them. And I'll be honest with you, I think that's something that is missing in the church, in our culture, in our day. A deep sense of identity with the people of God and a deep love for the church. We have conformed way too much to a culture that stresses individualism, and selfishness, and self-absorption. It's all about us, but we should be all about the church. We should love the church, and love the church not in just identifying with the church and speaking highly of the church, but praying for the church with fervency and passion praying for the church and interceding for the church as Esther is interceding we should be giving our time to the church we should be serving the church because it's that important to us we should be giving of our resources our money we should be tithing we should be giving freely and generously to the church because we love the church and it's that important to us How well are you loving your church? The king is surprised by not just the fervency of Esther, but the actual request that she's making. Because he basically, if you read what he's saying, he seems to be saying, you're not satisfied with what I've given you already? I've taken the life of your enemy. I've gotten him out of the picture. I've given you his estate. I've given Mordecai his power and authority. Isn't that enough? Besides, lest you forget, it's an irrevocable law. I can't unwrite this kind of law. It is established and cannot be revoked. Well, it's at this point that the king, even though he may not understand the request, he gives to Mordecai an incredible blank check. He gives him the ability to write as he wishes for the sake of the Jews. Basically gives him the opportunity to write another irrevocable law in the name of the king that has all the authority of the king to somehow help the Jews in their desperate plight. This new law that he writes, it's it's described, the description of it uh, begins in, in, in verse nine and that's actually where the process of writing the law and the actual content of the law and the distribution of the law is described it starts in verses 19 goes through verse 14 but it should sound familiar to you should sound familiar and let me step back a little bit and explain a little bit about the structure of the book of Esther and I alluded to this a couple times and it's kind of hard to explain but bear with me that Fa- scholars are fascinated by the book of, the, just scholars of literature in general, let alone theology, are fascinated by the book of Esther because of the way it's structured. It uses something that's very common in Scripture, and if you want to really go deeper into your interpretation and understand Scripture, this is one of the things you'll come across often in the Psalms, even in some of the New Testament writings, what they call a chiasm. It's a chiastic structure, and that, that word chiasm comes from the Greek letter which is chi, which is actually, when you look at it on paper, it's shaped like, it's an X, basically. It's an X. And so they say the book has a chiastic structure to it, which means, as we said, there's a turning point in the middle of the story. And so that's the middle of the X. You've got a turning point. But on both sides of that turning point, what you have are mirror images of one another in terms of parallels. Parallel parallel elements of the story. You'll have... Uh, You'll have uh, one element of the story, and then you'll have a mirror image of it on the other side of the turning point. And we've already seen how the first half of the story of Esther is the downfall of the Jews, so to speak, and the second half of the story is the the deliverance of the Jews. But you'll see there's so many parallel, and when you start to see it, if you're curious about this, go online and just put Esther and and Chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, or the other way around, A-I-S-M, anyway, you'll get it. Google spelled it right for you. Um, put it in and you will, um, you, you'll get, a, somebody will spell it out for you and you'll see these wonderful parallels, but one of them, actually let me give you an example of it just to show, explain what I mean. Fascinatingly, the very first chapter, the beginning of the story starts with a great feast, remember, the king throws a great feast, but that feast has two parts to it. There's the feast among all the provinces and then there's the feast among the, city of, the, the people in the city of Susa, so there's two, one great feast two parts to it. The end of the book, spoiler alert here, at the end of the book there's a great feast and there's two parts to it. One major feast and a smaller part to it. That's just an example of how the elements of the story are mirror images of each other. Different but very similar. Um, Well, the decrees themselves. You've got the first half of the book is dominated by Haman's decree. The second half of the book is dominated by this decree that Mordecai is going to write and they are so parallel to each other that you can actually accuse Mordecai of plagiarism. Because he literally takes the words of Haman's decree of death and uses the same words but turns it on its head. What's different about the two decrees is that Haman gives authority and power to the citizens of the Persian Empire to kill any of the Jews wherever they find them, men, women, and children, and to plunder all of their goods. That's what Haman's decree gave. But the language of Haman's decree, if you go back to chapter 3 and compare it to what's uh, the wording of Mordecai's decree here in chapter 8, you'll see that he uses the exact same words with a couple of key differences. First of all, it's the Jews that are given authority to fight, but the difference is they're to fight a defensive fight. They're only to, to defend themselves. But they're given, the wording is exactly the same. If you, if you were to look at them side by side, you're going to see that, it, that the same wording is used. To gather, they're given the right to gather, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force and to plunder their goods. Exact wording in both decrees. This decree of Mordecai is a great example of a new catastrophe, something you couldn't have seen coming but suddenly comes by the king's allowance to provide deliverance for God's people. Mordecai's decree would give power to the powerless and the hope of deliverance from death and destruction. Now what's interesting then is when you take a, step, take a couple of steps back and look at this in relation to the whole of scripture. There are, in order, another, tr- another important uh, tool to interpreting scripture is to understand that there are types in the Old Testament that foreshadow realities in the New Testament. There are types in the Old Testament that foreshadow realities, greater realities, in the, in the New Testament. And so we, we always say the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said, this whole Bible is about me. You know, this book is about Christ. But the Old Testament speaks of him in types and shadows most of the time. And so to understand these Old Testament passages, you have to understand it's alluding to some greater truth that is to come in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. There are two decrees in Esther. A decree, an irrevocable decree of death, and an irrevocable decree of deliverance. In Scripture, you have an irrevocable decree of death and an irrevocable decree of life or deliverance. God, the true king of the universe, has made two decrees. The thing that's the same about God's decree of the law, which is a decree that because we are sinners results in our death, what is the same about that to Haman's decree is that the the outcome of it, the certainty of it, the irrevocability about it. What's different is that Haman's decree of death was the essence of injustice, of sin. It's a horrendous decree. It's immoral. It's murder. But God's decree, the law of God, is the very essence of justice. It is the very definition of righteousness, of goodness and truth. But what is the same is that they both, both these decrees from both these kings, Ahasuerus, and from God the true king is that they result in death irrevocably. The second decree, Mordecai's decree, parallels the decree of the new covenant. God fulfills what's interesting is that just as another way in which these, the decree of death is the same is that the decree of the law is not revoked with the second decree just as Haman's decree was not revoked when Mordecai's decree was put in place both of them had to be fulfilled but that's the beauty of the law and the gospel is that the law is fulfilled in the obedience of Jesus Christ it's irrevocable but it's fulfilled because Jesus obeyed for us but what is gracious about the new decree the New Testament the new covenant is that there is a way of deliverance. There is a way to be saved from the results, the curse, the death that comes from the law. Because Christ obeyed for us, and then he died for us. He took the punishment of God's irrevocable decree of death upon himself. And then the second decree offers life. The second decree says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved it's irrevocable. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now I struggled as I saw this as I'm studying and I see this parallel, this shadow of the greater reality that would come in Christ. I'll have you know that I never try to come up with original thought because if I come up with original thought in studying scripture then it's probably wrong. Matter of fact it's almost undoubtedly wrong. Because so many wise people have studied the scripture before me. Somebody out there has thought of this before. But I really tried to find somebody that had this understanding of the two decrees and saw this shadow of the law and the gospel. And I couldn't find anybody. No commentary talked about it. And I thought, oh man, I'm not sure I'm right about this. You know where I got the confirmation? From Apostle Paul. It's the best place to get the confirmation from. Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8... Listen to how he begins this great chapter of celebration of the effects of the, of the gospel, that second decree. This is what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the decree, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the decree of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It's exactly what I was saying. The law of the gospel, the law of the spirit of life has now enabled us to fulfill the terms of the Mosaic law, the law that brought death. Believer, not only are you a future prince or princess of an eternal kingdom who will reign with Christ forever. Not only That's a great self-image for you. But to understand that one, you need to understand the more core self-image you have is I am justified. I am justified before God. The condemnation of the law cannot touch me because Christ died for me and he was raised for my justification. Therefore, There is no guilt, there is no shame, and there is no fear of death. Because the law of the gospel is irrevocable. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that brings us to the last reversal that we see in chapter 8. The reversal from great grief to great joy. Remember the response of the Jews back in chapter 4 when they heard about Haman's decree, the decree of death. This is what it says. This is how the writer describes their response when it was publicized throughout the kingdom. Says in chapter 4, verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now compare that to the great reversal that happens at the end of chapter eight, or pick it up in verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They celebrated the grace of the second decree. And it, what's interesting is it goes on to mention that there was an impact that when the people celebrated when the Jewish people celebrated God's grace and deliverance for them, notice what the response was of the Persian people around them in verse 17. And many from the peoples of that country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Now I think that last clause on there gives us a little hint that it wasn't entirely genuine. We're not talking about genuine conversions here probably in most cases, But the hope and the exciting thing is that probably there were some genuine conversions. But what is happening here is that the Jews had gone from being a despised people to the point where Esther would hide her identity to not be associated with them to now they're the in crowd. The Jews are the people, you know, remember what Haman's wife and his advisor said to him? Hey, if you're messing with the Jews, you're in trouble because, you know, whoever messes with those people, their God is powerful, you're going to fall. That's what his wife and his advisor told him. And now you've got the whole populace saying, wow, we, we fear the Jews. I mean, their God is powerful. Look at what he's doing. Let's, let's side with them. Let's get on their good side. That's how people, it's a bandwagon thing, obviously, that they're getting caught up in the moment here. But in that exposure to these rejoicing Jewish people, I'm sure there were many who came to know and love the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the true God of the scriptures. Now God's people still had a fight in front of them, didn't they? The second decree didn't immediately take away the struggle. They still had to fight for their survival, but their survival was ensured. What Mordecai's decree meant was that not only would the people of God continue, but the line of promise would continue. The covenant promises would continue to be fulfilled, and one would come one day to bring fulfillment to all those covenant promises. We too must continue to struggle and fight while we live this life in this fallen world as sinners among sinners. Christ is going to come and bring the fullness of our salvation and he's gonna complete the victory that he, that he established on the cross. All the effects of the work of the cross will be brought to completion in a new heavens and a new earth. But until that day, while we are still in this life, we are the church militant and we still fight and struggle I know people don't like to talk about us and them when it comes to the church, and there's a wrong way to do that, and there's a lot of wrong ways they're doing it out in our culture. But we still have enemies. And if you don't understand that there are enemies to the church, you don't understand the real, reality of the spiritual battles and wars that we're fighting. But we don't fight like the world fights. And our goals are not, you know, the holy wars of the Old Testament, those were types and shadows. The holy wars to gain the promised land, the holy war that the Jewish people fought against the Persians. Those holy wars were types and shadows of a far greater reality that we're in the midst of right now, which is a spiritual war. Paul talks about that war when he says in Ephesians chapter 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You see, the beauty of this spiritual war is that we defeat our enemies by praying for them. We defeat our enemies by doing good to them and turning the other cheek when they strike. We defeat our enemies when we love them, and we defeat our enemies when we preach the gospel to them and make disciples of them. That's how we win the spiritual war. We have our internal battles against sin, but those who are against us in the world, we love them, we pray for them, and we witness to them. And it's a struggle. It's a fight but not a single person for whom Christ died will be lost. The victory will be complete and it will be certain and we fight on until it comes. That celebration that the Jews had talked about feasting, celebrating, when the decree of Mordecai was publicized, it's just an echo a foreshadowing of a far greater celebration that is verbalized by the Apostle Paul at the end of chapter eight. I read for a moment ago from the beginning. Let me end, read the end and listen to this celebration. It's the same type of celebration over a decree of deliverance. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our victory. That's the certainty of our victory. That's the effect of the second decree of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that those who believe in him, who trust in him, who belong to him, will share in his victory in every possible way. J.R.R. Tolkien writing about these eucatastrophes, he said that when you come across them in all these different myths and stories and Marvel movies, you know, when, you, when these eucatastrophes happen, they're just a vague echo of the one great eucatastrophe that changed the universe when Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest eucatastrophe in the history of the universe. It's the crux, the cross, the crux, the turning point of all history. And it's all uphill for us from there. During World War II, what's interesting is World War II, Hitler, Hitler and the Nazis banned the reading of the Book of Esther from the Jewish people, he wouldn't let them read it because he didn't want them to find hope of deliverance. But what's interesting about that when you think about it is that the Jews weren't delivered. The Holocaust happened. Millions and millions of Jews wiped out by decree. And what that tells us is that the book of Esther is not that the Jewish people are always going to be delivered. That's not the message of the book of Esther. The book of because we know the rest of the Old Testament, much of the Jewish race did not, you know, came under God's judgment. The message of the book of Esther is, is that God, the same God who has decreed death to those who break the law, has decreed life to those who will believe in His covenant promises and be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. The decree is irrevocable. The gospel is irrevocable. At the end of Tolkien's The Great King, which is the final installment of The Lord of the Rings, um, sorry, I, think, should I should I give the spoiler here? I'll try to avoid the big spoiler here. At the end of the book, after the big event at Mount Doom, Samwise, and there's a little spoiler here, Samwise, Frodo's friend, he wakes up. He's been out. He was so spent by what happened at the end. He wakes up. And he's amazed. He's in a peaceful setting. His friends are all around him, and there's Gandalf sitting at his side. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf said, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or the water in a parched land. Let's pray. Father, it's so encouraging to be not only encouraged by how you intervened in history to save the people of God in the days of Esther and Mordecai, but we're so comforted to know that that was only a shadow of a far greater victory, and a far greater deliverance to come. Father, we are those who have put our hope and trust in the crucified and risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ, that you would open their eyes, open their ears, change their heart, that they might know him and find this eternal life in him. But for all of us who do know him and love him, I pray that this, self-identity would drive our decisions and our actions and our words in life, to understand that because of the decree of the gospel, the irrevocable decree of the gospel, we are princes and princesses of the eternal kingdom who will reign as co-heirs with Christ, who enjoy life eternally. And that life is knowing you and being in your presence and seeing your glory. Father, thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.